Thought Leadership from PwC. It's certainly common for private companies to issue awards that only vest upon an IPO or a change in control of the company. And the SPAC merger may not qualify. That's my guest, Jay Selber, a PwC National Office Partner. This is Heather Horn, and thanks for joining me for the next episode in our Facts on Spacks miniseries. In last week's episode, we talked all about the financial instruments that may be issued in a SPAC transaction. And as my guest, Chip Curry, mentioned, the accounting could be different if those items are issued as compensation arrangements. So today, we're looking at the compensation side of things, talking about the instruments that may be subject to the compensation guidance and the different approaches that would need to be considered as you sort through the accounting issues and some of the complexities. Jay has a lot to share with us, so let's get started. Jay, welcome back to the show and looking forward to talking about compensation arrangements in a SPAC. And Last week, Chip Curry and I talked about how various types of financial instruments that we might see in a SPAC transaction, but one of the points he made is that things could be different if they're issued as compensation arrangements. So maybe just to start things off, what are the, can you give an example of one of those instruments that may be subject to the compensation guidance instead of the financial instruments guidance? Yeah, thanks for having me back, Heather. And you know, it is funny that uh, Chip and I often sort of lob that football back and forth to each other as to whether something is in the scope of the compensation literature or the financial instruments literature, because you get you do get two rather different um, approaches to things. So generally, any type of instrument that gets issued would be considered compensatory or in the comp literature if it's issued in exchange for goods or services. So typically, that means that it's either issued to an employee or someone or some entity that's providing services, goods, or board service to the company, or even a, on the other side, a customer who might be buying goods or services from the company. So usually it's somebody in that category of the sort of relationship with the company. And then either it's being issued for free or for less than its fair value, or it's tied into some type of continued service requirement in order to be earned, like a vesting requirement of some sort. You don't necessarily need both. Uh, one or the other would generally uh, suggest you have a compensation arrangement if, if that counterparty has some relationship with you. But if you don't have either, either that you're getting at a discount or that you have to work in order to get it, then perhaps they're just buying the instrument in their capacity as an investor, as more of a financial instrument rather than a comp arrangement. All right. And I'm sure we're going to get a little more into this. But before we do, what are some of the key questions uh, people should be thinking about and identifying these awards? Right. So in the SPAC or really any environment, probably a key question is, well, who are the various instruments that you're thinking about being given to? Is it being given to the, the OPCO shareholders? Is it being given to the SPAC shareholders or the sponsors or the founders? Is it being given to employees of one of the companies? Is it being given to holders of options or restricted stock awards of one of the companies? That would probably be the first question I would think about. And then also, are they getting the instrument on the same terms as everybody else? So for example, 
tying into some of the things we've talked about in these other episodes, if the earnouts or warrants uh, are issued to parties who may be on the board of the company post-merger, but they aren't tied into any type of continued service requirements or vesting requirements, and they're on the same terms as the other shareholders in the entity, then again, maybe those aren't considered compensatory because they aren't tied into one of the things we were talking about before. So at a high level, uh, as Chip and you were kind of alluding to, if it's subject to the compensation guidance, not only do we have compensation expense to record, of course, but then it's often not subject to the unique and specific derivatives and financial instruments guidance that Chip talked through in that previous podcast. All right. So very important to make sure you land on the right side of the fence for your particular instrument in order to get the accounting right. So let's run through then some types of shares um, or instruments that are issued in the SPAC itself. So do we typically see compensation there? Now, maybe the stuff issued at the SPAC itself isn't a big deal post the DSPAC merger that many of, many of our listeners might be kind of first getting involved with here if that entity's financial statements are going away because it's being accounted for as a reverse recapitalization. But it could be the case that if the merger is being accounted for as a purchase of the operating company by the SPAC, like like Matt Sabatini has talked about, uh, in that case, the historical accounting of the SPAC entity might carry over with purchase accounting applied to the operating company. So sometimes we do care about what's sort of going on in the SPAC. And if we're addressing the instruments that were issued by the SPAC, it's kind of back to some of those same questions we were talking about a little while ago. In other words, who received the shares? What did they get? What did they pay for them in relation to the fair value? And what, if any, vesting conditions do they have on it? What we tend to find is that the initial shares that are issued to the founders of the SPAC entity at the initial formation, that's usually just viewed as initial capital issuances. This party was establishing the company, funding it with the initial capital when they were the only shareholders. That's probably just a capital contribution. But if the company issues new founder shares, or if the founding entity or the sponsor entity transfers or sells some of those shares at a later date, either to key executives or employees or board members or even celebrity endorsers that we see in some of these SPACs, those may very well be compensatory. The other type of instrument that we often see at the SPAC are warrants. And if those warrants that were issued to the founding entity uh, also have to be evaluated to see if they were issued at fair value in their capacity as just an investor, or were they issued at a discount, which might likely make them compensatory given their relationship with the company. All right. So then that's the SPAC itself. But I think where many of our listeners may kind of come into the equation is at the time of the DSPAC merger. And so what types of things should companies be looking out for there? Well, the first thing I'll get into there is that often the existing stock comp awards of the the OPCO, the operating company, the private operating company, uh, those are often legally exchanged for comparable awards of the public company as part of the transaction, since the public SPAC is typically the legal acquirer and those are the shares going forward that are going to be public. 
And let's assume for this purpose that the DSPAC merger will be accounted for as a reverse recapitalization, as many of the ones we run into are. So in that case, the OPCO's financial statements from an accounting perspective will carry over and be the historical ones, which means that legally exchanging those old stock comp awards for new ones of the new legal entity is some type of modification under the comp guidance. So we'd start off that thought process by looking at the legal terms of those original awards. In other words, what would happen to the awards or what must happen to those awards uh, upon the SPAC merger. If the holders were entitled to this award exchange or some other similar equitable adjustment under the award's original terms, then there may not be any incremental value that's being given out to them. But if they weren't, that could result in incremental comp cost, uh, depending on what they would have been able to keep if the company didn't do the exchange of wards. Uh, this is kind of similar to the concepts that we run into of modifying awards and an equity restructuring where we think about is, is there or isn't there anti-dilution provisions in the, uh, in the original terms. But you would also need to consider if the award holder could have retained the award as a non-controlling interest holder of the OPCO if the company didn't do anything, uh, since the OPCO will often survive the merger as a wholly owned subsidiary, and therefore you could have potentially kept that award, just wouldn't be able to get any public shares out of it. But then the exchange of awards from one to the other may be similar to what we see as an exchange of subsidiary equity awards for parent equity awards or other forms of common control mergers or recapitalizations. So like most stock comp modifications that I know we've talked about in a few other podcasts along the way, Heather, uh, this all comes down to whether the holders receive any incremental value or not. Uh, if they do, that's probably additional compensation cost. But if they don't, there probably wouldn't be any. But this often does require a very careful review of all the legal terms of the awards and the deal structure. When you first said, if they do, it's this, and if they don't, it's that, it's like, oh, this is so easy. Until, of course, you caveated that you have to look at the legal terms. So I know this is not easy at all. Uh, so, Jay, let's move on to another topic that we talked about also in the podcast with Chip. But again, I think there could be different considerations depending on who this goes to, and that would be an earnout. And before we talk about when an earnout may be compensatory, I think it might be helpful as a reminder to remind our listeners what an earnout is in general form. Right. And in this context, in the context of SPACs, what people tend to call an earnout uh, means shares or a promise of shares that are given to people that will be earned or will only be earned typically if a certain stock price target is met in the future. Maybe there's multiple thresholds to that, multiple target levels, but shares that are ultimately contingent upon achieving a stock price target in the future. It's kind of funny in the traditional sense of what we, we accountants tend to call earnouts. That's more in the business combinations world, which is you're going to give additional shares if the business does well, uh, perhaps post-merger. So the vernacular of earnouts is a little bit interesting here, but that's what when we talk about SPAC earnouts, that's usually what we're talking about. So then, Jay, in the context of the SPAC type of earnout, what are some of the compensation considerations or when would that be considered compensatory? 
Well, I would say that if the earnout is being given to any SPAC or OPCO employees or holders of any either vested or unvested stock awards in the OPCO or potentially the SPAC, then I would say definitely consider compensation. Uh, so maybe some questions to think about in that context. The first might be, were the holders legally entitled to receive the earnout arrangement under the original terms of the stock awards or their related plans? Or is this viewed a discretionary action? Um, and sometimes that's a legal interpretation that you might have to, to speak with your lawyers about. Because if it's discretionary, like many things in the comp world, uh, that would probably mean there's some amount of incremental comp that you're giving to those people. Another thing perhaps to think about is whether the person's ability to receive the earnout shares uh, depends either on the original option being exercised, if they held a stock option uh, before, because that would probably mean that there's just been a plain old modification of their original option to now include the additional earnout shares as part of that option, or if there are any vesting conditions associated with the earnout, meaning that that person perhaps needs to continue working or providing service to the company uh, in order to vest in the award and be eligible for the earnout share. So sometimes we see you have to pay both targets. You have to hit the stock price target and you have to work through that date. Well, that probably means that it's a compensatory arrangement as well because it requires that continued service. Uh, that could be an employee. That could be a board member, perhaps, maybe someone from the founding entity is going to stay on on the board of the merged company or you know, or an employee is going to stick around as well. Uh, again, if, if they have to stick around in order to be eligible for the earn out, then you're probably in the compensation arrangement. One other thing that we sometimes see is a phrase that, that people often refer to as a last man standing type of arrangement. Uh, and that means that if one person leaves and forfeits their awards, then those awards or those earnout shares are reallocated automatically to other people, perhaps on a proportionate basis. And if you have that situation, even though the total number of instruments that might get issued down the road doesn't change if any one person forfeits them because they're just going to get automatically reissued to others. For accounting purposes, and this isn't limited to SPACs, this is true in, in all places that we run into these last man standing plans, uh, we do have to look at the arrangements at the individual person level. So because that individual person needs to work for a period of time to earn them, it is still viewed as compensatory. And every time someone leaves and they forfeit the award and it gets reallocated to other people, that's viewed as a brand new grant to everybody else with a new measurement date because they're viewed to be receiving an additional award at that point. Oh, so that's a key thing then. These are not one and done, but you have to do it once. And then if people start leaving, then you're going to keep remeasuring. So it's important to uh, to keep in mind. So then, Jay, I know you see a lot of these deals. So I'm sure there's other variations of compensation that pop up. So any other items you'd highlight particularly? Well, one thing we do see a bunch is that it's certainly common for private companies to issue awards that only vest upon an IPO or a change in control of the company. And the SPAC merger 
may not qualify as either an IPO or a change in control, although, again, that's a legal determination. Uh, but if it doesn't automatically vest at that point, companies often consider modifying the award to allow vesting upon the SPAC merger anyways, because that's what they feel should happen. But that would be viewed as a modification under the stock comp guidance because of change being made. And then even worse, from an accounting perspective, it's uh, often what we would refer to as a type four or improbable to improbable modification, since IPOs and changes of control are typically not considered probable until they actually happen. And what that means from an accounting perspective is that there's a new measurement date for the award at the modification date. And so if down the road, it's probable the employees will ultimately vest in those awards or the deal ultimately happens and they vest in the award, the company would have to recognize compensation cost equal to the fair value of the award at the modification date. And of course, that's often higher than what it was at the original grant date of the award. So that's something that sometimes sneaks up on people in these cases, not unique to the not a new instrument issued in the SPAC, but just something that we often see companies making changes for as a result of the SPAC. So then, Jay, one question on that is, do you see any practice in terms of companies thinking, well, I might want to do a SPAC in the future, so maybe I should modify my award now instead of waiting until the SPAC? Is there a benefit of doing that? There can be. In fact, we have seen companies get ahead of this a little bit as a result of this starting to become more apparent. Um, even better, if you can include that in the original terms of an award, right? If you say that the award will vest upon an IPO, a change in control, or however you can define a SPAC, then it happens automatically. There's no modification when it ultimately occurs. Uh, if you're somewhere in between, you've already granted awards, you're thinking you might do a SPAC down the road, you could make that change, that modification today. It would still be a modification today. So you might have a new measurement date today, but perhaps your stock price is lower today than it will be when you ultimately can complete a SPAC. So you may indeed be able to, to do something to mitigate the effect of this. All right. So definitely something to consider, especially with new awards. So then let's do one last topic. And I know it's something that's near and dear to your heart, which is EPS considerations and something we also talked about with Chip. But anything specific with comp awards and EPS that our listeners should focus on? Well, if earnouts or warrants that are tied into a market condition are compensatory, their impact on EPS is pretty similar to what Chip described in the earlier Financial Instruments podcast on SPACs, but there are a few differences. So some of the similarities you would still consider if they're participating securities, if the holders of them would be entitled to receive dividends on the instruments when dividends are paid out to common stockholders and, and they're not subject to forfeiture, even if the earn out of warrant isn't ultimately earned. Uh, and you would still look to whether the target is being met or not at the end of each period to see if they should be included in the diluted EPS calculations. But in terms of what's a little different with stock comp awards is that if you are including them, you would also need to consider as part of your proceeds in the treasury stock method calculations any unrecognized compensation costs, that's that's viewed as another form of non-cash proceeds for those awards. 
And if the instrument is classified as a liability, but it's compensatory, whereas CHIP talked about this notion of adding back the mark-to-market effects to the numerator when you're putting that instrument through the diluted EPS calculations. If it's a compensatory arrangement, the guidance says you're not allowed to add back anything to the numerator. So it's purely a denominator addition here. So there's a different kind of calculation effect. Now, that's just the SPAC, earnout, and warrant pieces. Um, you know, there's certainly a lot of other elements of calculating EPS when you're first going public or going through a SPAC process. And we've talked about those in, um, you know, in several other podcasts either that we've already done, like one you and I did on stock comp in an IPO and one that you, me, and John Haran did on EPS uh, disclosures as well. And I know we're also going to have uh, another podcast in this series where John and I, I think we'll be talking a little bit more about some EPS considerations for other instruments. So lots of things to consider on EPS, but just trying to keep it to uh, sort of the, the these warrant and, and uh, earn out situations that we sometimes run into in a SPAC here for today's discussion. All right. Well, that EPS uh, or sorry, the stock comp and IPO podcast has been particularly popular. So thanks for p- plugging that one as well as the others. I guess if I were listening and thinking this is complicated, I'd like to read something about it. Is there, uh, is this covered in the stock comp guide or where should they go look? Um, yeah, along with the, those couple of podcasts we've mentioned, you listeners could both find more information in our stock compensation guide. Uh, several of the chapters talk about some of the things we've been kicking around today, but I would say especially chapters one, two, and four. And then for the EPS, Part of it, we talk about this and lots of other matters associated with EPS in Chapter 7 of our Financial Statement Presentation Guide. Outstanding. We will include those links in the show notes to this one, and they can always be found at viewpoint.pwc.com. So two last questions for you, Jay. One of the things that keeps coming up with SPACs is that they're not new. They seem new because most people hadn't dealt with them before, but they're not. So first question is a curiosity question. Were they new to you or is it something you had seen come up over the years in in various transactions you were dealing with? I do remember dealing with them. It seemed like in the past, we tended to call them blank check companies more than SPACs. And Mm -hmm. I don't know if there's a technical legal distinction between the two. Uh, But the idea was investors were putting their money into this vehicle without really knowing what they'd be buying. So they were writing a blank check, I guess, to the uh, to the founders in order to use that money for something else. So I, I have seen them in the past, but as you alluded to, and we've talked about in a number of other places, uh, they're, they've obviously mushroomed a lot in these past uh, year and a half, two years timeframe. So we've seen many, many more, and I think more of these sort of um, you know, unusual arrangements, particularly when you do the DSPAC merger, uh, every Every time we run into one, we seem to learn about a new flavor of an instrument that has been developed that we're trying to wrestle with. So it's definitely much more frequent these past few years, but they are something I I have seen in the past. All right. Well, then that's a perfect lead into my other question for you, which is not specific to what we've just talked about, but more broadly, I know you deal with so many companies and um, auditors dealing with SPAC transactions, IPOs, other types of transactions. And so if, as you take a step back, what's sort of the number one thing, if you were talking to a controller who's about to go through this, 
what's the fr- number one thing you would tell them? Make sure you have enough help and uh, arms and legs to do or deal with so many of the different issues you're going to see, meaning your either your own internal staff to, to build that out or to to obtain some external resources to help think through this because there are so many so many accounting issues, so many disclosure issues, I mean, everything's new, not only all the financial statement matters and all these complicated instruments you might run into, but there's, of course, all the, the MD&A and all the other aspects of putting together a public filing and, and stuff comes at you fast and furious, um, particularly when we've been talking about these SPAC matters. I mean, an IPO process, companies tend to have kind of their their own identified plan and time frame that they can kind of build their way along to prepare for an IPO. What I found in these SPAC matters is once they start, they go really fast that, um, you know, you're, you're, if you work for a company that is, becomes a target of a SPAC, once the parties might agree to, to do the SPAC, uh, usually everyone's in a real hurry to get the filings done. And it usually isn't, isn't much time to complete the SEC filings just based upon their various rules before and after the SPAC merger takes place, need to get things out so that shareholders can vote on it and the like. So usually it's a very, very, very accelerated timetable. Uh, and it's easy to underestimate the amount of accounting and disclosure and reporting issues uh, that you might run into in the course of, of uh, preparing those filings. Yes, I think we've talked about some of those issues today. Uh, so Jay, excellent advice on the last question. And of course, the entire podcast, very helpful. So it's always really nice to have you on. Thank you. Sure. Thanks for having me here. That does it for today. If you want to hear more from Jay, check out his episodes from earlier this month on disclosures for stock compensation and pension obligations. He's got a lot to share and you'll even hear me stump him with a question he couldn't answer. So you never miss an episode, follow the PwC Accounting Podcast series wherever you listen to your podcasts. And to stay up to date on all the latest content, let's connect on LinkedIn. From Thought Leadership at PwC, I'm Heather Horn. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast is brought to you by PwC, all rights reserved. PwC refers to the U.S. member firm or one of its subsidiaries or affiliates, and they sometimes refer to the PwC network. Each member firm is a separate legal entity. Please see www.pwc.com structure for further details. This podcast is for general information purposes only and should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.